0: Warning, this episode contains themes and issues around rape and cases of sexual violence against people and children. Listener discretion is advised. Woman, telling her story, come on, from the heart of the mystery despair years of violence we are breaking the silence hello and welcome to february's episode i am your host ruby micheladis and this is the cocoon podcast we are affiliated with the blue butterfly institute a not-for-profit organization dedicated to advocating empowering And educating victims and survivors of sexual violence. This episode will be exploring a critical and timely topic which is the Australian Law Reform Commission inquiry into the criminal justice system response to cases of sexual violence and I totally did just remember that off the top of my head. Joining us for this episode is Amanda Jane, who is a veteran lawyer, senior lecturer at CQ University, and she is going to be shedding light and will be discussing how the legal system can become more trauma friendly to survivors of sexual violence, particularly in court cases and restorative justice processes. This is all about humanizing the justice system and ensuring that survivors are supported and heard throughout their journey. This was a very interesting, current, and just a very insightful conversation overall. Let's dive in. You able to talk very quickly, uh, or just kind of in a more colloquial, sorry, colloquial perspective about what exactly is the, um, commission and into the criminal justice with sexual violence, the court systems right now, what is going on? Okay. So, uh, there
1: has been a, um, a referral from the attorney general who has, um, asked that a Commission be established uh, to investigate the uh, criminal justice system's response to sexual violence and what's so exciting about this inquiry is that it has very very broad terms of reference so these are kind of the ground rules that um, have to operate for Uh, the commissioners and kind of set the boundaries as to where they need to look and the the inquiry will range right from basically first report through to um, the end of the trial process sentencing alternative options for so if you don't want to go down the criminal sentencing options what other options are available for um addressing the the wrong that's being committed um things like um you know the civil justice system and and other options that are out there restorative justice and those kinds of things so right through to to the end of the process and even afterwards post post process follow-ups which i think are inordinately important very very important for survivors but currently are just not not happening so right from go to woe um very broad-ranging inquiry yes so they are the things that that will be looked at and that will happen over the next year or so, the next twelve months, and then the uh, commissioners will look at implementation issues. And so the um, the expert group will advise during that first twelve months when we're looking at all of the many, many moving parts as to you know what's causing issues uh, for survivors in in the criminal justice system, and then will also advise on the implementation matters that'll take about another 12 months so it's about a two-year process we're looking at here
0: yeah yeah because i did i did look at the at the um article and it said between 2022 and 2032 there was going to be like 10 years worth of of processing and trying to change the court systems do you reckon that's an accurate time
1: the The machinery of justice takes a very, mm-hmm. very long time to change, and um, I do believe that there are some reforms that can be implemented um, in a in a more uh, rapid fashion. But there are other changes, and more particularly, I think we've got to realise it's important to emphasise that justice reform is just one part of the puzzle. You know, um, the attitude of the criminal justice system to survivors is a really important part of the puzzle, but it's just one part. And there are other really um, important parts that um, currently are perhaps not operating as well as we would like also, for example, um, you know, the funding for um, support services is really uh, an issue that, that needs to be addressed. We also have the primary prevention measures. You know, you've got all of those respectful relationship kind of programs that are out there in terms of community education to change societal attitudes around this. So it's a it's a massive... Um, it's a massive challenge and law reform is just one part of, of that challenge.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And you're right in that. I think it probably is going to take such a long process because it's not just a legal thing. It's a, you know, it's a political change. It's a social change. Yes you know you know this is yes. yeah going to be catering to because I, I did see in the report as well you know you were mentioning culturally and ling- you know linguistically diverse women you know people of color you know people from lower socio-cultural backgrounds this really can can this really will cause a massive gl- uh, national change and and how do you foresee that it will change and be able to cater for those types of groups on a better basis?
1: Yeah, and that is
0: a critical point, Ruby. Um, we have
1: to have the input of all of those pri- what we call in the report priority populations. sometimes they're called under or overrepresented populations, so First Nations, women with disability, um lgbt community culturally linguistically diverse community um older women also is another um, c- community of survivors that often gets overlooked but you know what's going on in the aged care system is is really um, mm. you know it's it's a worry and so getting as many of of These survivors involved in this change process from these communities is just—it's essential, and we need to do more research. This is something else we say in the report. We need to do more research around how to engage with these sectors of the community.
0: Sorry, that was my mum. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) all good. I I often have my dog. Mm-hmm. Saying a few words. <laughs> Sorry about yes. that.
1: No, all good. I I think um we keep, we need to keep it real. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really important to engage widely on this issue because these sectors are so so overrepresented i mean first nations women you're you're a palawa
0: yes i am yes i'm aboriginal myself i'm uh am yeah i'm, a, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, indigenous yeah. tasmanian
1: that's that's yeah that's what i understood so you know engaging with as, as broadly as we can getting the information out so that people can feel like they've had a say They've had a voice, and that's just crucially important for survivors, that feeling of having had their say, but more importantly, being listened to, and that's what we need to be doing. South Africa, I think, is a jurisdiction that's doing things really well. Yes. And they have a lot a lot of focus around um, even just little things like, well, it's not little, but even things like, Having interpreters available in all of the different languages that um, frequent the the geographic locations where the courts are, things like being able to be interviewed in your own native language are incredibly important. But right down to things like now with the new rollout of the statutory courts that are coming on, they've even got spaces in court for guide dogs They've got the um, main points of information there uh, available for um, you know for blind people. They've got um, upon request. There's there's um, interpreters, sign language interpreters uh, for for deaf. So it's it's about bringing as many uh, survivors into the fold as we can. You know, it's 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 a crucial step
0: yeah exactly and what fascinated me was was the the lengths and situations that occurred that i hadn't even thought about before like i went like reading their report there was even a place somewhere where it was like you know there should be like a crash or an extra area for children to go in because a lot of survivors are single mothers and you know they, they can't they need someone to look after their children and i think like it's such it's such minuscule points that are so specific that yet create so much change and that there are so many people experiencing these things that like I wouldn't have thought of. And I don't think many other people thought of too. So with the data, like how do you come up with these over representation of such high crime rate of sexual violence in a minority? Mm.
1: There have been a number of government um, surveys that we looked at in the report in in the section that discusses the statistics. Um but at the moment, and this is something really that's just emerging as an, an issue in itself, we really need better data to um properly understand um the depths of the problem that's occurring for overrepresented populations because at the moment um the Data that's collected through the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics, for example, doesn't doesn't allow you to self-nominate certain information like I'm a First Nations woman or um, I, I identify as LGBT. Or uh, there are yeah. So we need to be looking at the types of data that we collect in order to really get a grip on. The size and shape of of the problem for um, overrepresented cohorts, and you know, the what we've looked at in the literature is uh, less around the the formal ABS type surveys that um, gather information, but it's it's the other grey literature that that sheds some light on the magnitude of the problem. So I understand First Nations uh, women and girls have three times, more than three times, the likelihood of um, sexual violence than other women and girls. Um, women with disability ha- are twice as likely to experience sexual violence. Um, as I said to you, the, the um, we don't really have a good understanding of what's happening for aged care at the moment but we do know i heard um a fabulous speaker at the stop domestic violence conference in in hobart just a month or so ago um and she was talking about the the magnitude of the problem for older women Um, so we really do need to be collecting better data on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I actually had to study a little bit into the aged care and, um, the Royal commission into the uh, NDIS as well. I I studied those for my journal for when I was studying journalism and I was really surprised at how high sexual violence is in aged care. Like you wouldn't think it's a possibility. But it is. And I think it just comes down to that desperate dire need for control and to consume someone in a horrific manner.
1: Yes. Yes. And there have been several reports in the media just recently uh, that have been quite horrific. And the issue is that, you know, after the media cycle ends, it just tends to uh, get forgotten again. And this is something that was discussed at that that conference that I was talking about and, and um, the, I think we're just now starting to get an idea of, of how much goes on. It's, it's an issue but um, yeah the data really needs to be uh, cleaned up and um, made more specific.
0: Yeah, I completely understand with that. And I can also understand the difficulties as well, because how do you, I guess, interview the aged care community when, you know, unfortunately, you know, most of them are are incapacitated? And then, you know, and then always there's like technical or like paperwork, you know, trails to even get through to that information.
1: Yes. Yeah, it is really difficult. Um, But I think the. Sometimes the challenge, uh, necess- the, the challenge itself necessitates perseverance, and and really um, some of the work that's being done in that space now is um, is really great. So, I think a, a challenge can spur some very determined women to go forward and research like they mm. haven't researched before. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. It feels like a repetitive cycle, doesn't it, sometimes? <laughs>
1: you you yes. think we would have learnt by it now? has been some. Yeah. Um, I, I, when I was talking, I, there was a um, talk I gave at Sexual Assault Services um, Victoria.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, I, I took out a snippet of something that Marjorie Lewis had said uh, way back in 1980 when they were just, you know, the 70s were the era where sexual violence was finally you know taken seriously as a crime and uh she wrote in 1980 that we we really have to focus on reform of the justice system and uh so that you don't get survivors saying the trial process was worse than the rape itself and incredibly In the Queensland report that came out in 21, 22, I think it was, um, you had survivors basically saying exactly the same things. You know, 43 years later, 42 years later, you have victim survivors saying the same things. And it, it does sometimes seem like, you know, you're on this treadmill and it's a repetitive cycle. But I feel like now the there is a convergence of of political will around this, and i I feel we do have an opportunity a once in a generation opportunity to really create some change so
0: and I think yeah. it mm. might be one of our only times as well, mm. you know I mean I mm. mean if we have this opportunity now we, we really this might be now or never, I think mm. Mm.
1: yes i I think um. What's going on at the moment with the um, the ALRC inquiry is um, incredibly important, and yes. I'm, I'm really looking forward to to working with the other survivors on on the expert group. And um, yeah, it, it'll be great.
0: Yeah. So before we talk about the ALRC, um, because that that is amazing, yeah. your promotion as well. That's beautiful. Um, there was a quote in part one report and I can't remember it clearly, but it said something like sexual violence is a violence on its own and therefore it should be prosecuted on its own. Why do you think sexual violence needs to have its own specialised legal system? How does this type of violence differ- differentiate between another type of violence?
1: Yes, and this is a question that we get asked um, quite often, you know, when you... When you um, when you deal with criminal law um, there is a temptation to say well isn't this just an assault like any other assault I mean what what really makes sexual violence different and why do we need to treat it differently and I think the short answer to that is it is a violation of your human right your human ability to choose and have agency over your own body and um there's a quote that we use in the report uh that says that sexual violence and rape in particular is literally dehumanizing it takes away your ability to choose what's most fundamental to any human being which is what happens to your body and when you are used in that fashion um it is an incredible injury that strikes at the very heart of humanity and often often sexual violence in the international law arena gets discussed as a, a form of discrimination because it's gendered and women and girls disproportionately overwhelmingly experience it but it's not just discrimination it's discrimination plus a violation of a number of different human rights like i said your own personal bodily autonomy you know your liberty yeah your right to um safety um there has been instances where it's also been classed as a form of torture. So all these things make the this particular crime um, a unique crime rather than just the run-of-the-mill assault. It's not just a form of assault. It is a particularly egregious form of assault. And the, the thing that flows on from that is that a victim survivor after the fact can be so highly sensitized to uh, traumatic situations in future that it makes them very susceptible and vulnerable, if you will, to being re-traumatized. So when you're being placed in a situation of a lack of control, like a courtroom, or like a legal process that you don't know about, you don't have the information to understand what your choices are, uh, that can be incredibly re-traumatising. And so the very process that's meant to provide you with an avenue for justice and for accountability ends up causing as much, and sometimes survivors say, more trauma than the original wrong that was committed. And that of itself is the package of of or constellation of, of issues that make this a very, very different crime to the average assault in the street, for example. I
0: mean, yeah, that so was... It, sorry, that was the most beautifully tragic and painful way to describe sexual violence i have ever heard that was just so eloquent but also yeah it's quite saddening isn't it i mean rape it it is a form of torture i mean you know i've just from you know women i've spoken to you're right it's and i think it's also an invasion if to get on a spiritual it's like an invasion of someone's soul you know this idea of forcibly taking someone's spirit
1: Yes, yes, and there are so many facets. I mean, we need to, I guess, preface the discussion with the fact that every survivor is different mm. and every survivor's experience of the event and the aftermath will be different. But there are so many, many splinters of um injury that can be caused in so many different areas of your life spiritual emotional psychological physical employment you know economic and financial it's there are so many moving parts to this and um yeah it's it's not it's not a crime like any other crime and and in order because we have this situation of acute trauma and and particularly for survivors that have for example repeated um experiences like for uh domestic family violence you have complex trauma um and so we need to be very very cognizant of the way that the law operates and to get those specialist measures in where the people that are are uh, interacting with survivors are informed about how they might respond to questioning, how they might respond to situations where they feel out of control or where they feel they don't have agency or they feel they are being disrespected again. Uh, These are the, the, the pressure points that we need to address with specialist knowledge
0: Yeah, and I completely agree with what you're saying with that too. But also just a quick question. So with sexual violence in the court system, will that also include, I guess, um, more, uh, I guess, insidious types of sexual violence like grooming or like brainwashing, um, manipulation, you know, those kind of um, unhealthy, toxic, victim-perpetrator relationships? (laughs) there are I guess that that's
1: a really good question and that gets back to um, definitions in a way so sexual violence is a really broad umbrella term for a lot of different conduct a lot of mm. different obnoxious conduct and it can range from um, as you say at the very low-end, you might have inappropriate jokes that are made in a workplace, so harassment, you might have um, inappropriate advances that are made, but then you might have, for example, shading into then some of that conduct might be not criminal per se, but then it shades into crimes and so you now have a broader range of crimes that are, are coming onto the legislation. You have your coercive control, and you have your, your grooming, etc., and you have those kinds of behaviours which uh, the law can address. And where you, where a perpetrator has engaged in in conduct that is criminal. And can be charged as a criminal offence, that's where then the court process can come into play if a victim survivor reports. But you've got to remember also, Ruby, you know, we've got less than 13 odd percent of survivors that report. So it's an extraordinarily low number. If we can if we can do something about this and increase the amount of reporting, it would be sensational because the the justice system needs to be a realistic option here and that's what we need to be addressing. But there is a wide range of conduct that gets discussed as sexual violence. Only those offences which are criminal can be dealt with in the court system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely gonna, um, t- put a pin in the how report and we'll, um, we'll think about that later on, but I'm, yes. I'm going to remember it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask because, um, like I myself, like I'm a survivor, but I was a victim of grooming and like by a, a like a, by just like a, a family friend and yeah and yeah yeah, and it's and the reason why i ask is because like is because we kind of always tend to differentiate ourselves from rape and violent acts because they're kind of two different avenues of trauma like half the time with grooming people don't know that they are groomed until years later and so yeah and i'm unreported as well because i didn't know i was groomed until i was about 18. It happened when I was, yes. you know, about four to, four to eight. So, yes, yeah, so that's why I wanted to ask because the, because there is, I guess, such different ways of how grooming versus violence um, are perceived and how people are towards them and even how people report.
1: Exactly. That, yeah, we need to bear in mind that there is a really wide range of survivor experience and, um, I, I also, uh, my childhood experience was um, in a religious setting, so um, that's a different setting. Again, there are lots of different contexts, and uh, so we need to be very cognizant of, very aware of um, the fact that survivors aren't just one, mm. <laughs> one uh Homogeneous group you know there isn't such a thing as a survivor you know there are, there are many 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 different experiences that survivors have and um, the way that we look at and treat childhood experiences necessarily needs to be even more acutely aware of how trauma operates um, when you have lived experience as a child um, and where where they are brave enough to take things to the justice system the justice system has to be equipped with appropriate and trauma-informed responses because you know it's it's bad enough having those lived experiences so young in life but you know, where you're looking at sometimes three, four, up to eight years worth of um, trial process, that's an enormous part of the kid's life.
0: Yeah, that's like enormous and growth neurologically, physically, emotionally.
1: Exactly. So you not only then have the trauma of the, the lived experience, but you have the trauma of that protracted process where you're constantly having to retell your story and there are also issues around not being able to speak to your caregivers because if you if they are also witnesses then you have problems there so i know that's um you know sometimes (laughs) you have issues like being reluctant to into counselling because of what that might or might not do to a witness's recall. Um so yeah, you've got to be acutely aware of the differences in how survivors have experienced their trauma.
0: Mm. Yeah, and the key word that I have read in your conversation article and the report um, you know, the key word I see, I've read a lot is trauma-controlled con- environment, that we have to implement things in a trauma-controlled environment. What exactly does that mean? And what can you, and are you able to provide some examples of what that would entail?
1: Yes. So what we are suggesting is that everyone in the court system that A survivor comes into contact with is trauma-informed and that doesn't mean that everyone in the court system has to be a trained psychologist. It just means having a basic understanding of what range of uh, experiences a survivor might have had And how they, the symptoms and the reactions, the consequences that a survivor might um, display in interactions. So it's all about keeping a survivor's uh, basic needs for respect and appropriate interactions foremost in mind i think the thing that um we say in our forthcoming article is you know doctors have what they call a hippocratic oath that they have to swear when you become a doctor you have to swear that you know you'll do no harm and we say you know in in the legal system we need to have something similar to that do no further harm because um Unfortunately, the, the criminal justice system does often do tr- further harm. So being trauma-informed avoids doing further harm. So victim survivors have a need for um, voice, particularly, because voice is something that's taken from you when you go through your lived experience. Agency, the choice of what happens to you. Information and communication, These are crucially important because without information and proper communication of the information in a way that's accessible, without that, you don't know what your choices are. So you can't exercise them. So then it gets back to that agency issue, you know, I was talking about. Participation is another one. So again, when you understand what choices you've got, you can make those choices. You can feel like you've participated. And that all, I guess the aim of being trauma-informed is to um, provide a platform for the survivor to be able to seek justice in a way that's empowering, not disempowering. And that's what trauma informed um, legal services and a court system is all about, is helping that victim survivor um, reach out for that that accountability that they're looking for and that validation in a way that's empowering
0: for them. Yes. I mean, yeah, that, that is definitely exactly what we should be going for. I really hope that we achieve that in, you know, my lifetime, hopefully as, as, as a late millennial, you know, um, I, de- I definitely hope yes. I see that in my sister's lifetime and like, you know, my children's children and, and all of that. I, I hope, hopefully there will be, I'm sure, I'm hope, I'm sure. I hope there's luck on my side. I'm sure there will be because we have amazing people like you in the fourth run, which brings to the inquiry, the AELC inquiry. What is that about?
1: Yep. Yeah. The um, Australian Law Reform Commission has been established to inquire uh, into the criminal justice system's response to sexual violence and, um, really broad ranging terms of reference so the terms of reference were set after a roundtable on sexual violence um, and we had some really um, prominent figures there so grace tame was involved in setting the terms of reference as well as um, some really prominent advocates um, angela lynch is another one that comes to mind um, helping the government decide how broadly uh, the inquiry should range, and so um, as we were saying before, they basically have a mandate. The commission can look at everything basically from um, go to way in the whole process. So from first report uh, right through the the what a, a victim survivor might experience through the criminal justice process right through to the end where uh, you have different options that might be considered for um, perhaps a a survivor's preferences so restorative justice rather than incarceration of the perpetrator Um, restorative justice options um, civil justice options all of those things at the back end will also be discussed so Um, It's a process that involves really teasing apart the issues that crop up at all of the different points of the criminal justice process and saying how can we look at this from a survivor's point of view and and try to minimise or avoid the re-traumatisation that's happening at each of those different pressure points
0: yeah okay and so what's the difference between civil justice and restorative restorative justice
1: okay so you've got a number of different options the criminal justice process is um what is engaged where a an offender is charged with a crime and they go through um a trial process Part of the difficulty for survivors is that it, when a an offender is charged with a crime, um, a, a sexual offence, uh, the victim survivor is—you might find this incredible—but is only considered to be a witness to the crime. So the actual um, the actual trial is between the state and the offender so the state is the one that is prosecuting the offender and the survivor is the principal witness for the state's case and so part of the issue with that and what can feel very disempowering is to be called a witness (laughs) to your own rape or uh, your own sexual offense Um, at the end of the trial, then, in a criminal trial, uh, you will have a range of criminal sanctions that can be applied to the offender, including uh, you know, incarceration, jail time. Um, but sometimes you do have plea bargaining that goes on, and lesser charges are prosecuted instead of the more serious sexual offences. And then obviously that has an effect at the end because the range of sanctions that can be applied are obviously much lower. Um, so in a civil, and the other thing with a criminal trial that makes it so difficult is that the, the, the what we call the burden of proof, the level of certainty that the jury has to be convinced of that this thing actually happened, is called beyond reasonable doubt and that standard of convincing the jury beyond reasonable doubt that the event occurred the way that the witness is saying it occurred is very very difficult they're basically the jury has to have no reasonable thought in their mind oh did this really happen it has to be beyond that, so it's it's very high this level of convincing that that the state prosecution has to maintain to get a, a conviction in a criminal trial. But a civil trial is um, a very different matter because it the burden of proof there is just on the balance of probabilities. So in a civil trial, um, if it's more likely than not that the rape or sexual offence occurred, then you can get a, um, a verdict in your favour. So um, it is somewhat easier to discharge that burden of proof but you have a very different range of sanctions that flow from a civil trial than you do from a criminal trial so with a civil trial it's usually about damages at the end of the day i don't you're a millennial so you probably don't remember the old oj simpson case from america
0: i don't but so, i i wasn't around but i i have studied it extensively it's a huge oh, thing in okay, the true crime so community know. i do know all yes. about it i'm a true crime buff yes. so it's always up there
1: oh, okay 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 so you'll know in that case then that the criminal trial failed because they couldn't convince yes because of that that very high burden of proof, but Nicole's um, family did succeed in the civil trial. So you can you can fail at one and succeed in another arena because of the differences in that burden of, of proof. So that's your difference, your main difference between your civil and your criminal. And restorative justice is only really just emerging now in Australia. It has been available for some time in certain jurisdictions. But this is where a survivor says, look, I'm not interested in going through a trial. This just doesn't interest me. I've already had enough trauma. Um, I've heard how traumatic the process of a trial is, but I still want some, some form of address for what I've suffered, for the wrong I've suffered. And so what normally happens with restorative justice is you have trained facilitators who do case conferencing uh, and they set up a conference between the survivor and the offender and the survivor gets to tell the offender their story and how the the event has impacted their lives, what consequences it's caused for them, um, the damage that it's done to, to their life. and uh, there are a range of different um, consequences that can flow from um, that kind of case conferencing that goes on in the restorative justice process. Sometimes it's about damages, sometimes it's just about an apology. Um, and so that option, um, is often, um, it's, it's appealing to survivors that perhaps don't want the whole, um, the, the publicity that comes with a, a civil or a criminal trial, you know, that feeling of being having all of the events dragged out in front of people that you don't know. <laughs> it's often in trials they are conducted in a closed court, but it doesn't change the fact that you've got to tell your story to people you don't know in a setting that's very, very intimidating. So it can, restorative justice can be an option for survivors that want that more, uh, I guess, the, the feeling of, for want of a better word, privacy in, in seeking address. Yeah, so they're the different options that are available. Or, of course, you know, there is the old just don't report it to anyone, which is, you know, what I did, <laughs> and many, 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 you know, more than 80 percent of us choose that route
0: yeah i mean yeah i'm undocumented as well because yeah because the 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 trauma process is just so harrowing and you know and there's many people like me who have the opinion well financial compensation is not worth the amount of you know pressure and anxiety and just the humiliation that a lot of people think when it comes to a court process. That's why I didn't report because like for me, just the process would have been humiliating. Like you said, degrading, dehumanizing. That's what a lot of women say they feel like in a court when it comes to reporting their own, like reporting what happened to them.
1: Yes. And one of the things that it's not just the dehumanizing, and having to retell your story but it's trying to tell your story particularly on the witness stand and not being allowed to tell it in a way that is authentic for you you've got your prosecution just asking you questions that you have to respond to you've got the defense barrister asking you questions that you have to respond to and you often can't get the words out that you want to say, and that in itself is um, very disempowering, very disempowering. So, yeah, it's. um, I think the range of options for a survivor is super-duper important. Do I want to engage with that process? Am I prepared to brave the prospect of having to retell my story in a way that is uncomfortable for me and might be twisted and distorted and taken out of context, which is often what happens, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it's sad, but it's honest, isn't it? Yeah. So just two more questions. So we've spoken about why, you know, women or people in general with sexual violence have not reported... Why should you report? What's the benefit? What, like, like, what do you get from it as a survivor to go through this process and report? Yeah, look,
1: Ruby, I think it's, again, it's different for every survivor. And the reasons that a survivor will, and the benefits that a survivor will see in reporting are different for everyone but I, sh- I can speak to the wider benefits. The, the criminal justice system and society needs to see the criminal justice system as a means of deterring and preventing conduct that is harmful for society as a whole. And what the criminal justice system can do is send a message very clearly that this is unacceptable conduct and where you've only got 13% of survivors reporting and a far, far lower percentage of that ever actually getting to court and a lower percentage than that. Like we're talking low single digit figures of convictions the societal benefit in having a greater level of accountability in this is what sends the message that this is unacceptable behaviour. And this is where I'm hoping the criminal justice system can start to change and drive a difference in attitude culturally, socially, um and, and on a personal level, you know, it's 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 being about um, driving change in society. It's just one small part of driving change in society on a broader level, but it's a very important part in driving change. So for me, as a lawyer and, and survivor, I think the benefit is... in in a greater number of survivors reporting will increase the level of accountability and will start to send the right messages here because I've read a really powerful article just recently called The Decriminalisation of Rape and essentially what the authors were saying is the criminal justice system is doing... (laughs) It's it's failing victim survivors so badly, and we have such low reporting levels and such low conviction levels that it's almost akin to decriminalising the crime of rape and and leaving it as a free for all. And I think, unfortunately, where you you have um, such low low figures there in reporting and convictions, it does leave that objection open, doesn't it? You know, it it sends the message that we don't want to be sending. So um, I guess that's probably putting it in a very extreme sense, but you can kind of get what I'm saying, which is, for me, the biggest benefit is changing the way that society thinks about sexual violence
0: yeah and that rape shouldn't be normalized and it yeah it shouldn't be normalized and we shouldn't be desensitized to it like we are
1: yes exactly it's not it's not a crime like any other crime it's not like you know um a snatch and run a mugging you know and, and that's not to trivialize those kinds of crimes because they're traumatic in themselves but where you as we were talking before this is such a unique uh criminal offense or suite of criminal offenses that um, we need to be changing society's attitude around that Mm. beautiful
0: and so i like so final question because i love to end these on a positive message for our listeners to any mm. survivor who wants to report or is in the midst of thinking about whether to report, or if they're not going through a not so good courting process, what words of wisdom and hope would you have for them? Hmm.
1: I would say um, find out as much information as you can about the uh, about the process about. The choices that are available, and um, if you are thinking of of pressing charges and go, going ahead uh, with uh, with this, have yourself an excellent network of support. Have your supports in place. Get the information you need, and particularly. If you find that you're not getting the information you need ask for it don't be afraid to ask for it because you will find that prosecutors because of their workload often don't offer the information that is really useful so if you're not getting the information you need go ahead and ask for it i know that there are specialist um police uh uh units in a number of different states and territories in australia now see if you can find out about one of those um just ask 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 get information is power and as i said support network is really super duper important because this is something that while you go through it on your own as a survivor you really need to have people in your corner, you know, that will lift you up when things get tough. And they will, you know, Ruby. Even if everything goes swimmingly well in this kind of process, there will be moments where it gets really tough. So, having that that backup is really essential. Beautiful, stuff. and knowing when to, and, and knowing when to reach out. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: The right people, you know, the right people that you reach out to, they'll always find a way to provide you with some confidence and support if you need it. Yes,
1: yeah. So this is why programs like yours are just amazing, an amazing resource. And the more we can equip
0: survivors with the information they need, the better position they'll be in. Mm. That was, I'm just going to end it there because that is just such a hopeful line. So thank you, Amanda, for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem at all, Ruby. I look forward to future chats.
1: Let your voices be heard. There is healing in your words. Let your voices be heard. There is healing, there is healing. Let your voice be heard. There is healing in your words. Let your voice be heard. There is healing, there
0: is healing.